0: Chapter 4. Dionysus Meets Diogenes, or The Adventures of the Embodied Intellect. Quoting Thus Spoke Zarathustra on Child and Marriage, You shall create a higher body, a movement, a self-propelled wheel. The construction of the tragic stage in the birth of tragedy, as we have suggested, was in itself a preparation for the appearance of Zarathustra. The nature of the early 1870s, however, was as little aware of this as his contemporary readers were. What he did sense very clearly, though, was that the first tremor of a philosophical earthquake had been registered in his book. Bearing this in mind, what did the resistance of his colleagues and the silence of his profession signify? Even the masquerade of Apollo and Dionysus would have seemed only a matter of secondary importance in the face of this tremor. For what the young Nietzsche had set in motion by positioning in the wings of the tragic stage a spectator named Socrates, who represented a whole universe of wayward philosophising, would soon prove more important than what was apparently taking place on the stage itself. It seemed almost as if Nietzsche wanted to supply evidence in support of the Tenant that all decisive blows were dealt with the left hand, or to express it better, that the real dramas were being acted out along the edges of the stage. I will attempt, with an occasional subversion of the text, to retell the play within the play, and to tell it in such a way that a three-dimensional image of the dramatic process emerges. What is happening on his way across the tragic stage of art, Nietzsche expressed experienced Nolan's Volans, that in the festival performances named after Dionysus, Dionysus himself is no longer a match for the Apollonian compulsion to symbolize. Certainly the magic spell of tragedy depends on the cult-like chanting of the he-goats. And yet, one aspect of the matter is also that a he-goat who can do nothing but chant, eventually cuts a tragic figure. Were there not, before there was music, truer ecstasies, and more impervious raptures that had fallen victim to the Doric process of pre-censorship? Would the god of intoxication acquiesce to such curtailments? Would he not be compelled to fly into a rage over this aesthetic swindle of sacrifice? Had not the form his revenge would take already been predetermined by destiny? An unobtrusive figure appears in the wings of the theatre, his name is Socrates, and we should caution the reader that this is a pseudonym, or at least not the man's full name. This figure indicates no understanding for the sublimity of the play and does not take part in the artistic intoxication of the others. He sits there, he fidgets back and forth, shakes his head and yawns. Sometimes even speaks out loud in between, spontaneously offering theoretical suggestions on the progression of the plot. According to him the heroes would not have to unavoidably perish if only they could keep this or that in mind by God, could it be that a philosopher has lost his way and wandered into a tragic theatre? The strange visitor behaves loathsomely. And yet, during the terrible convolutions of the hero's agony, he exhibits the most malicious optimism, and always seems to want to say, it doesn't have to be this way, things could be otherwise, destiny doesn't follow a fixed script. We thought to let something other than this occur to us, The true disciple of Dionysus can only turn away in disgust from so much insincerity. However, is so lacking in good taste that he does not take life seriously as a tragedy cannot be proper company for a well-schooled Dionysian. Or can it be that he is proper company precisely because of this? Nonetheless, the most resolute partisan of tragedy will not deny that Dionysian pleasure must complement Dionysian pain. Indeed, not only complement it, but constitute and surpass it. The fact that this pleasure hides behind the masks of optimism and comfort would correspond completely to the abysmal superficiality that one must credit to the playful god of intoxication. Is it not part of the essence of tragedy that it is reflected in comedy? Does not the pain want to vanish so that pleasure can stake its own claim to eternity? In any case, the Dionysian, or, should one say, fan of Dionysus, is alarmed. He knows there is someone in the audience whom he must dismiss as contemptible at first glance, but whom he also cannot afford to let out of his sight. His presence has something unsettling about it. Perhaps he is an unforeseen incarnation of a god. He looks like an idiot, a tramp, like a reasoning ape, but who can know for sure? Perhaps he has a cunning mask of a god, which would lead us to conclude that he is a smiling god. From his smiles deities have sprung forth. From his tears have sprung forth men. So goes the myth. On the other hand, one never imagined that the laughter of a god could be so insipid. Sky always laughs at the wrong moment. He laughs off the mark. He speaks when he shouldn't, he sits where he shouldn't, and he understands nothing of the dramas of individuation, nothing of the metaphysical convolutions of heroes, and nothing of the murderous violence inherent in the dilemmas. For if he did understand, how could he still laugh? If he were prepared to unite in compassion with the god, how could he then abandon himself to his vulgar gaiety? rubbing his belly and, under the open sky of the tragic stage, reduce the deity to a good man. All of this notwithstanding, the shallow buffoon hangs about obstinately in the retinue of the deity. The only thing that can be noted to his credit is that he does not allow himself to be thrown off by any of the contempt shown towards him. He avoids all questions as to what he is looking for here or whether he belongs there at all, With an ironic wink, as if he does not quite comprehend what the words look for or belong mean. The more sublime things become, the more idiotic his laughter sounds. The more ceremoniously the symbols are spread out, the more energetically he shakes his ugly head and makes counter-proposals in the face of destiny. Is he not a stain on the magnificent vestments of Dionysus? But maybe he also has something to do with the terrible truth of the god. Perhaps it is his embarrassing mission to favour the mediocre over the profound. Perhaps he has been given the terrible duty of informing us that the truth is really not so terrible after all. We would then have to concede that Dionysus was not the most terrible of all deities, because his terror is not absolute. A God in whom we sincerely want to believe should at least not be ironic. Dionysus is up to no good with the sincere believers among his followers. One of the greatest intuitions contained in Nietzsche's first book is revealed by its coupling of the dramatic resuscitation of tragic wisdom with the birth of the gay science, even if this is done in a very enigmatic and imperceptible way. The intrinsic polarity Nietzsche treats in his book is precisely not that between the Apollonian and the Dionysian. The dramatic theme of the book is the relationship between the tragic and the non-tragic. An attentive reader must be astonished by how easily the compromise between the two deities of art is accomplished by Nietzsche the philologist. While on the other hand, he has considerable difficulty removing the world of tragic art from the world of non-art, of mundanity, of rationality and theoretical behaviour. In a word, from what he terms Socratic culture... Nietzsche required no more than a few pages at the beginning of the birth of tragedy for the compromise between Apollo and Dionysus, for the balancing out of the tragic with the non-tragic he needed the rest of his life, without ever finding a solution to this lamentable complex. In the course of his efforts vis-a-vis the non-tragic, however, he became a genius of de-dramatization, of cheering up, and of taking it easy. Thus, the same man who, while wearing the mask of the Antichrist, vented his emotions in the form of a highly charged, pathetic outbursts, also became one of the founding fathers of the gay science. As Nietzsche interprets them, Apollo and Dionysus harmonise so splendidly that their historic compromise could be synonymous with a form of quote unquote, more advanced culture. Freud's theory of culture and neurosis is really only the continuation of the Nietzschean concept of compromise. However, Dionysus, the embodiment of divine vitality, cannot bear to be honored exclusively at the altars of this more advanced culture. All along he has also laid claim to the wild side, and is therefore also called the god to come. Commend. Not least of all because he is as thrilling as sexual ecstasy, what is the most uh, which is the most commend experience that human beings know His domain is the wilderness of intoxication, to the extent that this also represents a vital experience for human beings within culture. Culture is possible only if that which is older than it supports it and remains preserved within it. culture is possible only if that which is older than it and supports it remains preserved within it. And yet the term quote unquote, wilderness for Dionysus suggests more than a music reservation administered by Apollo. For this reason he does not, if he is honest, like to attend operas and the tragedies that are supposedly about him are more likely to inspire him to yawn than to give him pleasure. It may therefore be the case that this laughing and yawning idiot whom Nietzsche sees emerging at the edge of the tragic stage is in truth a messenger of the god to come, who is supposed to make it clear to his solemnly high-strung followers that he is from time to time in need of more palpable forms of adoration. If tragedy will be forever only an orgy in place of an orgy, the fact will ultimately prove to be an argument against tragedy no matter how sympathetic we are to the advantages to be gained from the substitution. In order to punish, but also to caution, the friends of tragedy, Dionysus resolves to give them the initiative to come to their senses through a messenger whom they will in all likelihood not believe, so that they will most certainly miss the god behind the pretext of his cult. They would then possess the unmisleading sense they would then possess the unmisleading sense for the masked truths Nietzsche substantiated. Do we now understand the immeasurable consequences that must result from the introduction of this philosophising spectator? Through his introduction, as banal as he may seem at first glance, the Dionysian phenomenon, which was initially only postulated and which had been put on ice by the forces of Apollo could be set in motion in an unforeseen manner. The petrified wrestling match between Apollo and Dionysus could be transformed back into a vital struggle, provided the Dionysian front was no longer acknowledged as existing only in the tragic spectacle, but also, and above all, in the discreet play of the non-tragic. As a result, one would have to defi- decipher the scene, which consists of a chorus, heroes, the public and the philosopher, differently than has been customary up until now. Certainly the God would appear, as Nietzsche shows, further objectified and illustrated by Apollo, and at the same time as a dream image of the chorus, as the suffering hero on the tragic stage. but. What if he were also to appear unillustrated within the audience itself in the guise of a vulgar philosophizing fool who makes fun of the heroes, the tragedies, and the whole world of the symbolic? What if Dionysus were no longer alone in his futile assault on the Apollonian impulses of representation? Perhaps he could, while he waltzes across the orchestra pit in the convulsions of his dilemma, also sit in the balcony and enjoy the spectacle he is making. Perhaps this blasphemous amusement signifies the essential and most consequential breakthrough on the part of the Dionysian through the the fissure of culture. Because Dionysus has denounced the absence of a divine wilderness in the innermost religion of culture, does he not, more than anyone else, have the right to sneer at its symbolisations? Only the god of the theatre can dare to ask, what is the point of theatre? These statements which go beyond Nietzsche's text, and may seem to disregard it, are essential for bringing the phenomenon that is unspecified but inherent to the text into a proper light. For when Nietzsche supplements his thoughts on tragedy with those on non tragedy, of course he does this reluctantly and in open conflict with his tragic heroic elan, he is preparing the way for the insight that, in the future, we will have to reckon with a twofold manifestation of the Dionysian a higher one and a lower one, one that is symbolic and one that is pantomimic, one that is celebratory and one which is commonplace one spectacular, and one imperceptible. Anyone who is serious about the Dionysian cannot overlook the fact that, in addition to the great music festivals of universal transfiguration, there must also exist Dionysians of the commonplace. If this God really does mean to signify the essence of the reality of the world differently, and to represent not merely an impresario for week-long Dionysian cultural celebrations, or an excuse for artistic stimulation under the supervision of Apollo? Music festivals of universal ecstasy, from Pergamum to boyright why not? But can the Dionysian calendar be satisfied with only two weeks of festivities? Is the always approaching God sufficiently honoured by one debauch per year? And even if it is true that a year-long orgy would be a contradiction in itself and that it is part of the fundamental structure of the festival to whirl past in great cycles the truth of the gods must be preserved and shown respect in an appropriate manner during the periods of his absence the orgies cannot become chronic but the truth of the orgy this absorption of the individual consciousness into an enraptured non-objectivity that releases it from the misery of individuation can and must also be elevated to the status of an unpretentious keepsake. More than anyone, Nietzsche has again put us on the trail to the proper name of, his, of this keepsake. For 2,500 years, it has been known as Philosophy. Philosophy. It is unbelievable. As long as it has existed, philosophy has, with a few suspect exceptions, presented itself as the opposite of all that which the most ordinary understanding would define as the Dionysian. From the very beginning it presented itself in a favorable light as tranquility itself, seeking the cheerfulness of spirit and existing only in the higher realm of ideas. And now it is suggested that philosophy is fundamentally a manifestation of the Dionysian, appearing incognito as something unobtrusive, hermetic and far removed from tragedy. The plausibility of this suggestion stands and falls with that of the initial assumptions, that there must necessarily be Dionysians of the commonplace that the truth of Dionysus also knows a non-tragic means for manifesting itself, and that, therefore, a suspension of consciousness has developed that deciphers the arrival of the God and the thousand ordinary things that, because of their everyday occurrence among us, make up what we refer to as the world. Assuming that this is all true, it is obvious why the philosophical thought that had become scholastic had to have experienced great difficulty in divining itself defining itself from the very beginning, because it has ever since been communicated best whenever it has itself forgotten that for which it had originally stood. In Nietzsche's Birth of Tragedy the Veil is pulled back a bit from the mystery for the first time. Accordingly the Dionysian calm after the storm appears as the authentic philosophy. It is the celebration of the commonplace in the light of excess. A haze of post-orgiastic thoughtfulness, therefore, surrounds all original thought. The ecstasy vanishes, order returns once again, and the everyday resumes its course. But the astonishment remains. The elevated universal experience, or universal fusion of intoxication, has an obscure after-effect. Somewhere, should we say within, the Dionysian fissure gapes open like an abyss or a nothingness into which everything that comes along will henceforth sink like something monstrous, even if it is the most unobtrusive and commonplace. In its most pedantic manifestation, however, philosophy would not consider a thinking of itself in this way. Soon after its debut, it had already involved itself in an undertaking all its own. It soon forgot that it had initially been one half of a bipartite cultural wonder, which led on the one hand to the birth of tragedy out of the spirit of the musical orgy, but on the other to the birth of philosophy out of the spirit of difficulty, which was to be carried out in the interim between orgies. Since then, philosophy has turned a deaf ear whenever it has been in a position to hear the truth about itself. It does not want to acknowledge that it is in a mode of thought that is in a state of remembrance of Orgy's past. An orgy in place of an orgy. A drama in place of a drama. Like every chronic search, it one day put itself in the place of what it was seeking, and thereby lost itself. Seemingly self-satisfied in the contemplation of higher realms of thought and spiritual hidden worlds, intelligible structures, and logical procedures. What would later be called, quote-unquote, metaphysics, developed through this substitution. Quote-unquote, theory, developed through the repression of the Dionysian consciousness, of universal arrival. Welt an- Bewusstsein, Weltenkunftsbewusstsein, Bewusstsein. (coughs) Theory developed through the repression of the Dionysian consciousness of universal arrival by the objectifying and stagnant worldview. Both have left a very deep impression on the history of the West. In both a dominion of a truth is announced, the consequences of which seem incalculable. Nietzsche was the first to recognise that the word truth was almost always in the language of philosophy the equivalent of substitute, alibi, pretext, surrogate, and representation. He saw through the illusion of the quote-unquote real world as a surrogate world and through the quote-unquote true knowledge of the philosophers as a knowledge in place of knowledge. Philosophical truth was for him always a quote-unquote truth that stands in place of something else. What is true within the truth, therefore, cannot possibly be understood without a theory of substitution and representation. stellvertretung Once again we encounter Nietzsche's great subject of illusion. Once again we observe the interplay between an affirmative illusion that places values on its impenetrability and a residue of transparency that makes it possible to think from now on within the context of a critical function. For if the substitute were not, to a certain extent, just as good or better than what it was replacing, it could not replace it. If it did not stand in its place, we would always have to be dealing with something that could not be substituted for. We would always be immersed in the mute thing in and of itself, and would not be able to maintain any distance from it. Thus it would seem to lie in the nature of the substitution that it places a substitute before itself, through which we can adapt ourselves to it. What cannot be replaced here reveals its affinity with the unendurable. What does this have to do with philosophy? Or well, naturally, these surrogate Dionysians, who have established themselves as hard-hearted lovers of knowledge, belong in some way to the Dionysian phenomenon, because they could not replace it otherwise. They acquire their critical distance to the real Dionysians quote unquote, first and foremost. However, in that they sense nothing of their own surrogate Dionysian quality and have since the time of Socrates found themselves in the position of being oblivious to Dionysus. And yet, if Dionysus is also the god of the surrogate Dionysians then a Dionysian fundamental phenomenon must take place in the Dionysian oblivion of theoretical thought. And accordingly, Dionysus also prevails in the modus of his withdrawal, his absence, his oblivion. Only in the twilight hours of thought and within the framework of epochal ruptures in intellectual history does Dionysus awaken, as it were, to himself, and become a more reasoning mode of thought. A condition of alertness inspired by dangers, which no longer represents anything, but is rather the unmediated self-contemplation of the monstrous. Does this suggest merely a variation on Heidegger's thought, which is not yet decided between parody and paraphrase? One would have to say instead that Heidegger has transposed Nietzsche's parody of philosophy into an unauthorised, melancholic key. There is everything to indicate that this time the farce preceded the melancholic version, and that Heidegger's parody of nature is a more serious offence against the rules of art than the droll original. It is a parody in place of a parody, when philosophy when it was in its infancy. Who could have thought that it would someday bring forth something like this, but there should be no panic among Heidegger's adoring multitudes. That bu- uh, <coughs> that the birth of tragedy can be read as we have read it already presupposes the alternatives. muglichkeiten That Heidegger's earnest thinking out has won by means of Nietzsche's impulse to criticise philosophy. And the dramaturgical freedom we have assumed in our reading of the gay sciences, one of which Heidegger was the co conqueror Nietzsche's playfulness becomes evident only in contrast to Heidegger's seriousness. But what permeates the seriousness and jocularity is an epochal mutation of consciousness, the consequences of which become immeasurable once Nietzsche has entered his post-metaphysical period. A mutation that cuts like a century-long awakening into an era of thought, and it counteracts its dramatic future. He who is lucky enough to be able, because of the modest organisation of his intellect, to dismiss this as mere irrationalism, should stay asleep for a while longer. But an unusual task awaits those who have awakened early. This task begins with the still painful denunciation of Socrates that gapes forth in Nietzsche's book like an open wound. Nietzsche disguises himself here as a free thinker, well-schooled in the best tradition of the Enlightenment, who was striking down a father of the church with the momentum of his anti-clerical fury. Socrates, the father of the theoretical truth. Socrates, the arch-dogmatist of human self-improvement through mere reason. Socrates, the intellectual mixture of poisons and demons of a negative Enlightenment. Socrates, the unmusical barbarian who thought who... Uh, the unmusical barbarian of thought, who, in his furore of reason, no longer conceives of tragedy as a misfortune, but rather as a problem, and who no longer understands that life is above all else a process of self-composition, not an object for self-reflexive deconstruction. With him the decline of tragic consciousness begins, and philosophy enters into an age of theoretical optimism a term that is merely another name for the most insipid Dionysian obliviousness. Listen to the tone of these reproaches. Nietzsche is not protesting <coughs> against the abrupt invasion of the scientific intellect into Greek thought, which occurred in the brief interim between the appearance of Socrates and the work of Aristotle. He objects to the undionysian unartistic, theoretical, self-misrepresentation of philosophy in the persons of those who, after Heraclitus, are its greatest representatives. He does not intend to forgive Socrates for having destroyed the unity of art and philosophy that had lent its depth to an older way of thinking and was informed by Dionysus, and which could be rediscovered in a new way of thinking. The birth of tragedy, therefore, does not limit itself to an anti-Socratic tirade, and certainly not to a mere denunciation of philosophy. In publishing his book, Nietzsche intended to point the way to a future potential of an art-enriched thought that has been reborn through the spirit of Dionysus. Ecce Philosophos, Dionysus Philosophos. In this early book Nietzsche has already initiated a radical restylization of the philosophical intellect. Even in his great reprimand of Socrates, his intention is to save the thinker from his merely theoretical obsession if philosophy is ours. If the philosopher is possibly only a clever hego in a state of post orgiastic meditation, then the concerns of Dionysus are not lost theoretically Two alternatives are available, through which the he-goat could dispense with his theoretical horns. Nietzsche has taken both into consideration. The theoretical Socrates could be rehabilitated through Dionysus as a music-making, or as a raving Socrates. The first path had already been offered to the ancient Socrates, if the legend is correct, by his demon. Who this time spoke to him, not to dissuade him as he usually did, but to challenge him? Socrates, make music! For Nietzsche, this meant that a philosopher could be forgiven for anything, except for being musically deficient. However, to the extent that Socrates represented the incarnation of the concept weaving unmusicality, he really did lead philosophy in a direction that was unforgivable. Nietzsche does not, however, view this false step as irreversible. Had not Schopenhauer in his metaphysics of music already broken through the wall that divided the philosophical universe from the musical one? Was not Wagner a living example of the fact that it was possible to unite the genius of music with the tragically ideal in earlier doctrines of truth? And above all, was not Nietzsche himself already involved in testing a new union of the divided spheres? As far as the raving Socrates was concerned, a figure who would assume a significance as great as it was clandestine in Nietzsche's later writing, he need only read what Diogenes hawked to Laetius in his Lives and Thoughts of the Famous Philosophers through his namesake from Sinope. Here we read Socrates' Maino Minos, the phrase was coined by no less than Plato. And what could be read beyond this, a collection of anecdotes on a capricious, malicious, life-drenched doctrine of wisdom that refused to constitute a philosophy, was enough to offer Nietzsche, the artist-theoretician who despaired of theoretical thought, advice he should never forget. This would all point to the trace of the almost physical, un-theoretical spirituality of the character type that was Dionysian and yet non-tragic. In future writings, Nietzsche will mention his ancient source only with an averted gaze. Only with the protection of a psychological and moralistic incognito can he succeed in following the ancient trail, spur, and in profiting from it to a degree that would exceed anything imaginable. Quote, something cynical, perhaps something weighty, End quote, will now come into play in all of his works. Nietzsche's discretion here is easy to understand by opening by openly establishing a connection with the irreverent bravura of the cynical writers. He refers to them as we will recall in the birth of tragedy in the course of his criticism of the Platonic dialogue as the equivalent of the novel form of ideas. of the novel Form four ideas. He would have disavowed his stance of tragic, aristocratic self-stylisation in which he, the eternal royal child, Koenigskin, had invested so much. He would have had to make two admissions at once, when the one, that there was a non-tragic manifestation of the Dionysian, was already difficult enough. He only succeeded in making the second admission right at the very end. He admitted that there might also be a plebeian form of greatness. For in spite of everything, there appears, within the earliest form of Cynicism, an indespicable plebeian gallantry as the amor fati of the poor scoundrel. Indeed, as in Crates, there appears in poverty as a chosen way of life a rare sovereignty. More than any individual detail, there is a wild sense for the price of freedom, and he would experience the denunciation of the lies of comfort and the beautiful antics of the middle path. In the primary representations of kinesism, an impressive denial of the authority of man-made laws is revealed, expressed in the decision to submit himself without cultural trimmings to the majesty of the physis. Here, the term physis does not mean the paragon of the object world, or the gearwork of an obdurate cosmic causality. It is to a much greater extent the guarantor of an existence that does not defer to any reification, and is thus esteemed as the physical foundation of ecstasy, of which the freedom speeches of the philosophers communicate only the diluted infusion. The ancient speech of physis was not a tyrannically objectifying cult of physicalism, but rather a ways and means through which the consciousness of a hermeneutic gnosis of the body could express itself. All of this had too much in common with Nietzsche's own philosophical and psychological tendencies to have eluded him for long. Indeed, cynicism, together with certain rudimentary elements within the stoical, heraclitic movement, was the last and most anonymous form of ancient doctrines of wisdom, and thus of a form of thought that conforms to the play of forces and the dissonant consonances of physis, without losing itself in the phantasms of philosophical doctrines of the beyond. Let the depraved ghosts worry about transcendence and spin out their relationship with immanence. The consciousness of the ecstatic physicists, physica, refuses to ascend into the transcendent worlds of the philosophers, because for them there exists no transcendence that remains within physis and that values it highly enough. He who wanted to establish a post-metaphysical mode of thought, as Nietzsche undertook to do in the strongest moments of his thought and in his whole literary guerrilla war on the great truths, he had to take up the trail of the last pre-metaphysicians, especially if he was to prove that he was a Greek scholar who had read his Lercius better than anyone else. But what does it mean to take up the trail of a consciousness that, because it lacks the will to theory and does not believe in the vital significance of speculation, has left hardly a trace behind it? What constitutes the trail of this consciousness which has disappeared almost without a trace. Surely not these few statements by the kinnocks on the cosmos as the home of man, or on nature as the measure of action. Presuming even the slightest standard for a theoretically developed capacity to question, these statements must be found lacking. The dominion of kinicism lies elsewhere, in its habitus, its mood, its infatuation with the current, and its style. This oscillates whenever it is authentically re-embodied. Between didactic pantomime and satirical, quote-unquote, checkered writing, satyr plays of the body and the pen. Thus the concept of literature comes into play here for a second time, with a specific emphasis. Again, Nietzsche violates the rules of his profession with his brightly chequered literalisation of philosophy, no differently than the way in which he had, during his initial appearance on stage, already strayed from the framework of what was permissible within the context of philology. It was precisely in doing this that he, somewhat surreptitiously, but also with a decisiveness that leaves no room for any doubt, takes up the thread of that which has stretched from the cynical writers of antiquity through countless entanglements into modernity. The gay science begins to spin its vestments from this thread. It will soon openly speak its name in the title of a subsequent book. It will speak first with the best cynical psychologizing of the human, all too human, of the petty, malignant truths of the commonplace that the blind gaze of theoretical sight has already overlooked. Without literature, no truth. Without psychology, no alertness. Without cynicism, no freedom to call things by their names. And yet one should not delude oneself about the status of Nietzsche's psychology however much it flirts with the perspective of the natural sciences and the stupidity of British positivism, however much it purports to flee into the Apollonian and plays out the role of a cold presence of mind in the face of former ecstasies, this psychology has, at its impulsive core, long since been not a theoretical undertaking, but instead a dramatic one. It organises Dionysians of civility, and excesses of disillusionment. Dionysus, cool. Nietzsche wrote in retrospect. Here from page 302. But he who is related to me by the height of desire thereby experiences the true ecstasies of learning. There is absolutely no prouder and at the same refined type of book Here and there, they achieve the height of what can be achieved on earth. Cynicism. One has to conquer them with the most tender fingers, as well as with the bravest fists. It is the same Dionysian impulse that gives the author an unparalleled understanding of the psychodramatic tissue of ancient tragedy, and at the same time opens his eyes to the Dionysians of the commonplace, the satyr plays of the banal, and the circles of hell of the all-too-human. As an aesthetician as well as a psychologist, Nietzsche becomes the mouthpiece of a consequential Dionysian invasion of the theoretical and moralistic culture of modern bourgeois society. It is true that, in his twofold presence at as orgy participant and psychologist, as Dionysian hero and critical rogue, Nietzsche brings to light a character who is anything but straightforward. He is modern, with all the implications of that term, and as such does not omit the self-contradiction and ambivalence that belongs to modernism. He is decadent, a man who has been seriously wounded by culture and all its resultant ramifications, the most valuable of which appear openly, unequivocal with time. As E. M. Chiorin had correctly observed, quote, his misery was therapeutic for us. He opened up the era of complexes. Quote. His was indeed a serious case, and yet nothing could prevent him from discovering in himself. Deeper reserves of healthiness than anyone could have credited him with, considering his wound. His laughter was unfounded. The experience of his life did not justify it. Perhaps because of this he was authorised, as no one else had been, to state that pleasure, even within the context of sorely tested existence, was a deeper phenomenon than pain. In any case, he had as over-serious intellect, discovered something that was uncomplicated within a condition of complexity. A halcyon cheerfulness with which he veiled the news of the terrible truth. Cheerfulness is the courtesy of the complex. Even now, the gay science is still the most polite way to openly discuss the unbearable elements of existence. There is no way to retaliate against the clever idiots who because of the light tone of the work, conclude that the thought contained therein is in itself insipid, except with the beautiful statement with which Nietzsche has characterized the relationship between the philosopher and those among his public who are merely clever and inexperienced. Quoting pages 234-35. to 35. Every deep thinker fears being understood more than he fears being misunderstood. The latter wounds his vanity, perhaps, but the former wounds his heart. His sense of compassion, which always responds, Ah, why do the likes of you want to suffer as I do? Nietzsche paid a high price for discovering that Dionysus not only manifests himself as a suffering hero and an ecstatic chorus, but can also plunge into the human fray as a psychologist, itinerant mystic, a cursed philosopher and stylist. When he escaped into the non-idealistic, he lost the sympathies of the Wagnerians and thus let fall the most important external supports for his confident self-awareness. Anyone who studies Nietzsche's inner conflicts during the period of his separation from the cult of Wagner and from the constraints of the academic chair in Basel We'll find it hard to avoid speaking of a social death, a categorical, existential, and philosophical separation. For those who have entered into the psychonautical circle, a social death is inevitable. Only it can bring to the end the interplay between the collective and the personal lies of life, which unite so gladly around common values. I praise you, you praise me, we both lie. But he who is experiencing a social death because he has begun to find himself can no longer be helped by anything general or by any external encouragement. Whoever believes that he is engaged in real thought without having first peered into the abyss of his own singularity is merely trying to convince himself that he is thinking. He dreams a conformist's dream and wishes it were the dream of a critical consciousness. He who really thinks he is condemned to an isolation. That compels him to begin anew and to fulfill himself, henceforth there will no longer be any tradition, but only a rediscovery of himself in affinities and constellations. During his cynical, psychologizing, knowledge criticizing years, Nietzsche forged ahead into an isolation that was constitutive of a mode of thought oriented towards the terrible truth. Only through the discovery of a positive and liberating isolation could the pleasurable painful, schmerzlich, prophecy of the Dionysian psychocritique free itself from its involvement in the idealistic fraud of the Wagner cult. Because isolation exonerated him from all considerations, Nietzsche was quickly able to free himself from the false classicist mannerisms that still cling to his book on tragedy. Redemption from the idols created space for the implementation of harder, purer values. From now on it was a matter of Voltaire versus Wagner. Romantic esprit versus a deep-rooted Teutonic clumsiness. The free thinker versus the religious fanatic, a sincere nihilism versus a neo-idealist self-indulgence in higher worlds, the malicious tongue versus a beautiful foaming at the mouth, the shadowless phenomena of the South versus the northern lights of cynicism, the cynical music of Carmen versus Wagner's oppressive Venusburg, the truth of the small energetic stab, versus the lie of great style. One thing cannot be denied, Nietzsche was profound in his descent into the isolation of his new precision. From this point on we have known more about the consanguinity of cruelty and profundity but also more about that of the precision of good humour, the precision, nota bene, of musicians and artists, not of administrators of knowledge and those who count mistakes, who confuse devotion to their inhibitions with precision. He who shoots off theorems like arrows and gives out bites like statements must believe that he can rely on what he is saying having the effect, having an effect on the pain-pleasure scale, index veri, for the author as well as for the public. Nietzsche practiced this belief as only a true believer can. His credo demanded that there should be no pronouncements of truth without consequences, and if these consisted of the perishing of the perceiver because of that through which his will to truth had overextended itself, fiat veritas, periat vita. This outlook on the possible adversity inherent in the correspondence between knowledge and effect explains why Nietzsche's credo suggests more than merely an overblown artist's concern for effect, and certainly not a reduction of philosophy to rhetoric. Nietzsche's concept of style is based on a condensation of all speech into the pleasurable, painful, physical foundation of knowledge. In his pronouncements on truth, the truth itself begins to become concrete, not in Lenin's sense, which ultimately confused truth with grenades and allowed its concreteness to atrophy into a strategic brutality called quote-unquote praxis. Rather, it is concrete in the sense of a somatic aesthetic, a return to the true, into what can be perceived as true, a renewed and deepened investigation of knowledge and sensuality. Nietzsche's writing provides the prototype for a modern philosophical orality. What increasingly takes the upper hand in his pronouncements on truth is, in addition to the musical character of his lecture in general, the bittersweet pleasure he finds in taking the world into his mouth in den mund nehmen, devout, as something he both loves and hates, the wild joy in biting and being bitten, without which the Dionysians of this divination would not possess a physical foundation in the body. One can also say that in nature the sense of taste once again takes on a philosophical dimension as the most intimate of the universal senses, Philosophy reaches back into its somatic sources. The world is initially experienced through the mouth. For this reason, Nietzsche's critique of knowledge and psychology, particularly that of the Middle Period, does not comprise a soul-soothing theory, even though it does borrow from the grammatical structure and philosophical vocabulary of such a theory. His theory is an oral guerrilla campaign. It is true that his philosophical, psychocritical writings are presented in a glittering Apollonian prose that with its malicious simplicity, feigns contempt for any merely theoretical complexity. But these writings, with their forced rationalism and positivistic petulance, should be read as oral Dionyses in miniature. They are the bites, screams and leaps, transformed into language, of a psyche compelled to communicate its cool state of delirium, alongside the constant arrival of the world, Ankunft. Nietzsche is trying out a way of speaking that gushes forth from the speaker so quickly, so precisely, so dryly, so calculatedly, and so fatally, that for a moment, the difference between life and speech seems to have disappeared in the moments of the highest oral intensity that which is said is consumed in the act of saying it all representations are reduced to ashes in the act of being expressed they are no there are no longer any semantics only gesticulations no longer any ideas only tropes of energy No longer any higher meaning, only temporal stimulation. No logos, only orality. There is no longer anything holy, only heartbeats. No longer any spirit, only breath. No longer a god, only the movements of a mouth. Who can wonder at the fact that up until this day this language has been in search of those who understand it. It is the language of the post-metaphysical human being, and perhaps only a sort of children's language as well, a return to a joyful orality at the heights of culture. A hundred years after Nietzsche, it now and again seems as if almost popular coming to terms. Let me try that again. A hundred years after Nietzsche, it now and again seems as if an almost popular coming to terms with this singular philosopher were possible. Perhaps a majority of the aesthetic successes and the important philosophical self-representations of the present day are only the fulfilment of what was announced in his work. One indication of this among countless many is the excessive corroboration that Nietzsche's verdict on the cynical Carmen has found among the mass public today. In addition, we could also count the return of opera, the renaissance of pathos, the discovery of a second misfortune a general obsession with the physical, the wholesale renunciation of finalistic apparitions, the irresistible privileging of taste over ethics, and the unnerving vacillation of souls between isolation and consolidation, between the effort to separate and the desire to unify, between the hell of difference and that of identity, all of these are Nietzsche's landscapes and we inhabit these landscapes not because we also share his problems but because his problems and the language in which he deals with them increasingly guide and overshadow our own problematizing (coughs) taste instead of ethics where will it lead what is taste anyway how can such an unfathomable quantity take on meaning in intellectual terms? And what if this is not the proper way to phrase the question? What if all systems of signification, felton have always been merely systems of taste? Different ways and means of translating the aroma of the world into linguistic articulations? Could it not be that all metaphysical doctrines have only served to coat the bitter pill of life in the sweet confection of an assigned meaning? Quote, and you tell me, friends, that there is no disputing of taste and tasting, but all of life is a dispute of taste and tasting. And quote, have not all the great methods for organising the world been merely manipulations of taste? It is no coincidence that the words COSMOLOGY and COSMETICS have the same root. And all philosophical statements, only perfumed attempts to stifle the unbearable fumes. Let me try and read that sentence again without the parenthesis. Have not all the great methods for organising the world been merely manipulations of taste? and all philosophical statements only perfumed attempts to stifle the unbearable fumes of the universal sewer and the effort involved in conceptualization. Psychology tells us that taste is the most intimate, the most universal sense of perception, and Heidegger tells us that moods explain the world. The preacher Salomonus went into greater detail. Woman is bitter, he said and Nietzsche shared in this taste, without questioning the authority of his Biblical predecessor. Nietzsche's exceptional position among the modern philosophical authors is grounded above all, in my opinion, on the fact that, like almost no other thinker before him, he focused his reflections exclusively on the interplay between mood and taste. He was a philosophizing stylist because he consciously adapted his writing to the modi of orality. Speaking with an extraordinary intensity of moods, keys, variations of taste, levels of volume and tempi, he was the first philosopher to grasp that language itself, style itself, and expression itself, were nothing other than lifeless pseudo-Platonisms. From which the remains of life were fleeing. As a consequence, the expression of truth in itself came to halt for him. How all truths were expressed was from then on their own affair and was relative to the mood, Stimmung, of the instrument upon which they were played, the excitable body. The reverse side of this insight would read as follows Eliminate the excitability of the body and you will win one, quote-unquote, truth. Wearing the mask of Zarathustra, Nietzsche was the one who, as the first modernist, and without having been a Sufi, came upon a truth that wanted to be danced. He was also the one who knew that truth could be expressed in laughter, a truth through tears, va weinen had also confided in him in moments of Dionysian emotion without taking into consideration the soldier in him, who preferred to find the truth contained in holding fast and standing as ground. And what could be said about the war truth through vomiting, that presented itself as an accompanying symptom of the severe mind-grain headaches that plagued the flayed body of the writer who had so little flair for lying. Nietzsche developed two modes for expressing the truth to a greater extent than any of the others. Truth through biting, and truth through singing, both of which are the ultimate stagings of an oral truth that has been mediated by taste and mood. Truth through biting is the prototypical gesture of a psychological writing of the clinical type of unmasking. Which oscillates between a biting to death that causes him to suffer, whether through obtrusiveness, quote, the cattle among my friends, mere Germans, by your leave, end quote. or through deprivation. Did he not refer to Lou Salome after the disappointment as that quote, withered, dirty, foul smelling little ape with her false tits? End quote and the desirously precise, cruel and tender nibbling at subjects, with which mere contemplation would accomplish nothing in the face of a sensual hunger for knowledge. Nietzsche knew truth through singing as a gesture that legitimately appeared with anyone who had learned, through great suffering, to cherish the value of good moments. Quote, Singing is for those who are convalescing, The healthy man prefers to speak." A man who had to bite through entire worlds of constraints and deficiencies. A man who was too sensitive, who wanted too much, but who was also like an eternal convalescent, so happy to be able to celebrate in song a few great recoveries. Nietzsche exercised in his work a body of writing that brought to light between the small bite and the great milos, between Lacanism and the dithyram and unmistakable individuality. This wonderfully mobile and well-trained body of language executed leaps and handstands, which even today could not be performed by anyone who was theoretically motionless and on ice, even if he published fat-bodied theories of aesthetic experience. But Nietzsche's capers would be fundamentally misrepresented if we were to see them only see in them only vigorous asides to serious questions of truth. In them was manifested, precisely as it was in his flights of pathos, a Dionysian subversion of the esprit de sérieux, with which the modern world, with its theoretical and moralistic dominions of sentiment, is leadenly weighed down. In his physicality of language, sprach he wanted to announce a new ethics. Phui, but do we still react this way today? Of thought. He wanted to announce a new ethics of thought. Nietzsche's holy lesson in behaviour is recommended as would be a hygienic or dietetic measure. A sort of intellectual and spiritual musical training as a mental gymnastics course for practising a new psycho-physical ethics of intensity. Nietzsche knew that there was nothing more improper than a lack of energy that appears disguised as a science. He sensed that there was nothing more suspect than a fear of the truth that passed itself off as critical consciousness. And nothing more perverse than an inability to recognize that which confused itself with circumspection. Above all, Nietzsche developed a thoroughly volatile sense for the obscenity of the so-called communication of subjects, who are not sufficiently daring in how they express themselves. How he hated the phenomenon which George Gross later caricatured in his Republican automatons. These functionaries of their own selves, these display-window mannequins of their own essence. He uncovered the vampirism inherent not only in the Christian ethic, but to an even greater extent, to that of a moralistic, theoretical culture. I am certain that in the long run, this will prove to be the more important of Nietzsche's reassessment of values. The quote-unquote unmasking of Christianity as a movement of resentment and as an epochal deadly assault may prove insignificant when compared to the uncovering of the physicality of thought. This is not a mode of thought that concentrates on the body, and not a playing off of the physical against the intellectual, rather it is a physical intellectuality in which the drama of a post-metaphysics appears. Therefore, it is always intelligence on the verge of something, an intelligence in transit, on stage, in the mood. It does not cling to the subject as if it were private property, but thrusts it forward like a provocation and a revelation. Perhaps in this context the limitations of the old dumbstruck enlightenment will become blindingly, blitzhaft, clear as representations, as representing those of an attempt to limit intelligence, like an active subject of property, to a defined centre of a static, risk-free character, instead of an understanding that comes into play only as a dramatic and procedural quantity beyond the illusion of the propertied individual that has distorted every aspect of life and modernity. Nietzsche recognised intelligence as the virtue of the wanderer and psychonaut, and as a component at work in the make-up of the seafarer, of whom he wrote, Indeed, we philosophers and free spirits feel when we hear the news that the old god is dead, as if a new dawn shone on us, Our heart overflows with gratitude, amazement, premonitions, expectation. At long last the horizon again appears free to us, even if it should not be bright. At long last our ships may venture out again, venture out to face any danger. All the daring of the lover of knowledge is permitted again. The sea, our sea, lies open again. Perhaps there has never yet been such an open sea. In each of these cases, it is a way of thinking that, in its fundamental concepts and basic operations, still utilises dramatic characters. excuse me. Categories. No, it is a phenomenon that can only still fulfil itself in categories that exist because of their analogy to drama. Tragoidea facta est quad philosophia fuit. Within this dramaturgy of the spirit, no statements are valid only scenes, no ideas, only plot lines, no discourses, only provocations. Thinking is the phenomenon of thought, the adventure of the perceiver, the drama of dramas. Nietzsche encircles this phenomenal cleverness with a ring of sparkling metaphors, metaphors of open seas, sea journeys, tightrope walking. Alpine or nomadic metaphors, metaphors of fragrance, sound, trembling and surging, metaphors of gushing forth, rupturing, rolling forth from oneself, overflowing, ejaculation, parturition. all of these images reveal a phenomenal intellect that is searching, creative, testing in nature, a logos polytropos, which signifies nothing other than a brightness, helizyne of the body on its great journey out of the earth and around the world. It is important to stress here that in Nietzsche, as in all post-metaphysicians of the Dionysian type in general, it is never a matter of organising a compensatory justice. We cannot permit ourselves to be caught up in Nietzsche's rhetoric on this point. His self-awareness of his creation of epochs did not have real historical philosophical significance. What this author is doing does not constitute a pure enthronement of sensuality which was supposed to be helped back to its proper place after the theoretical ascetic excesses of the western ratio. Post-metaphysical reflection is not intended to be a balancing mechanism against an excess of anything, something intelligible as opposed to something sensitive. It is also not a new beginning after something has ended, such as the return of the body after an era of disembodiment has run its course. And it is also not the sunrise of great honesty after an age of hypocrisy. What is it then, if not any of these? It is the constantly self-accomplishing deepening of subjectivity of the universally open in the body's process of becoming more linguistic and more universally yielding, which is enriched in the course of its conscientious composition of self with increases in cohesion. Does this mean that the relationship between body and intellect has been reversed, seemingly contrary to all metaphysical principles? In the place of Logos being made flesh, it would seem that now physis has become language. But even this formulation is incorrect, for this does not occur in its place, but rather becomes apparent as the fundamental phenomenon that, from time immemorial, has also encompassed the world word becoming flesh. The process of the physis becoming illuminated and lingual is much older than the descent of Logos into the body, both older and more historically powerful. What we call incarnation, and in doing so we unhesitatingly think of Christian Platonism and its modern surrogate manifestations, is merely an episode within the eternal linguistic and spiritual resplendence, Aufleuchten, of the physis, which has been going on forever. Presumably in the dawn of advanced culture, the impression must have occurred that there existed an autonomous sphere of ideas, values, deities, and commandments, which would have to descend into the physical world in order to accomplish its spiritualizing work. It's opus operandum within it. Quote, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, End quote. This hymnos of Christian Platonism is at the same time the motto of advanced cultures that Ao Ipso represent programs for moralizing, spiritualization, education and excarnation. Therefore, advanced cultures must always constantly appear as cultures that represent the inner war waged by a mobilizing and conquering intellect against a languid and suffering flesh. There is a there is at work within them, in addition to the external violence of war and domination perhaps as the strongest characteristic, the incarnate violence of the word, which entered the body in order to elevate its sorrow, desire, indolence and self-will into a radiant, quote unquote, function. A more patient analysis, however, will reveal that this is a false description or at least an inadequate one, which mistakes only half of the phenomenon for the whole. For speech itself is always older than the logos of advanced culture. From the very beginning bodies have had their moods, their taste, their excitation, before an empowering word could dictate to them what they were to say or incarnate. Since human existence depends on sharing and communicating Because of older somatic fundamentals, no real foundation exists for a Logos that would prefer to cut itself away from its physical foundation in order to tyrannically monopolize it. Logos is merely the parasite of an older linguistic predilection that responds only secondarily and in a highly cultured way to the violence and catastrophic conditions of the civilizing process. Logos always creeps upward along the unendurability of a universal condition within which life appears as something that must be overcome, and if not as this, then at least as something that is meant to be observed from above. Thus, the old affinity between spiritualization and mortification, both of which are symptoms of logopathology, logopathy, of advanced culture. But even the excesses of logification are only the bifurcations of the primary communicativity of the living, which still has the capacity to recognize itself in its abuses. Does Nietzsche's own work corroborate these observations? I believe he is one of the few thinkers to fulfill, in an exemplary manner and from a modern perspective, the tendency to become language, which is inherent in physis. He was a genius of correspondences, He survived the experience of universal arrival and concession, of excitation and resonance, of phenomenon and correspondence, in an overwhelming way. Looking back on the ecstasies he experienced during the writing of Zarathustra, he found astonishing formulations for the surplus of words that were available for expressing the factual manner of life. Quote, here all things come caressingly to your speech and flatter you, for they want to ride on your back. All being wants to become word here. All that is in the process of becoming wants to learn to speak from you. End quote. Shortly before the beginning of the 20th century, which is the linguistic century, a linguistic phenomenon occurred that no linguist could ever have imagined. How did Nietzsche describe it? With the very least residue of superstition within oneself, one could hardly know how to rid oneself of the idea that one is mere incarnation, merely a mouthpiece, merely a medium for powerful forces. One would have to extinguish even the final remainders of superstition in order to find one's way back through the metaphysical fog to the truth of what was most evident. The fact that, here, no higher meaning was being incarnated. Rather, a physis was expressing itself to the limits of overexposure, for stralung, in this borderline area, where there is no active difference between expression in and of itself, and expressing something. At the edges of language, the difference between existence and speech is extinguished in the unavoidable fulfilment of absolute expression. That a maximum of physical well-being was added to these preconditions indicates that Nietzsche could find the rhythm of a successful life only if he freed himself from the compulsion to incarnate, so as to be able to yield to expression before language. Quote, My muscular ease was always greatest whenever my creative powers were most active. The body is enraptured. We can leave the soul out of our discussion. End quote. Nevertheless, his idea of being a medium, of performing the function of a mouthpiece, is not merely a superstitious mistake. It is tantamount to the insight that, in advanced cultures' bathing of the body with the radiation of language, a compulsion and seduction are at work that do not stem from the speaker himself, and which cause him to say things that he does not excuse me, say of his own accord, von Zickhaus in the most precise sense. The spoken language is indeed not my own, or at least not entirely my own. It is always the others who have made me speak and listen to a language. Real speaking always occurs only in relation to hearing, above all to having been heard. These inspired verbal emotions, Werther Griffenheiten result in the effect, as strange as it is understandable, that through the speaker, the other only now, as it were, begins to speak. We call these strange episodes of linguistic life inspiration, in which the designation and descriptions that Logos has left behind within the individual begin to resound against the instruments of the body as if they were our own property. Within the context of aesthetic inspiration, we observe how physis embraces, surpasses dances around and appeases the logos in such moments the impression suggests itself that a sort of music is the mother tongue of life according to Friedrich hebel prior to becoming human we heard music within such inspired speech the maternal and paternal tongues resound through the mouthpiece of the child of the world The forebears make use of this child as a sign, psychin, for the expressions that could not be expressed during their existence. It is the dumb desire to be one of the others that inscribes the hyperplastic linguistic body of the child, so that this body might express what is incapable of expressing itself. Quote, everything that is in the process of becoming wants to learn to speak from you. End quote in the very name used to designate the child, in fans, the one who does not speak, a process that aims towards making it a being who does speak comes into play, a process that is identical to the last detail, to that of incarnation. Within the incarnation of Logos, the subject would not enter into advanced culture, and without violation there would be no incarnation of Logos. Violation and Logos belong together because only through violation can the speaker be compelled to say things that are directed against the vital interests of the infans. To speak in accordance with a Logos means to speak the language of those who can make use of me only as someone who is obedient and deadened. Logos is the epitome of values and words in the name of which we take part in partial and total self-mortification. But how could we define a culture that would be successful in positive terms? Must culture inevitably be reduced to a subtle program of self-mortification and self-violation? Or by no means? For even if culture always has violence as part of its inheritance, it is free to release alert participants in the civilizing process from violation into creative play. The conscious endurance of what is painful and Humoristic subversion to the highest purposes, every speaker who investigates the matter can attempt to bring the violence he has inherited to life in positive terms through partially obsequious partially insurrectional analogies to its incarnational duties incarnations auftragen in order to express again what is its own after being released from the cultural curriculum that has been demanded by Logos. To express what is its own, however, means being able, in a cheerful way, to say nothing more. It means getting behind the Logos and reuniting with the older communicativity of the living. Thus, a risk-laden drama is plotted out within every psyche and advanced culture. The wrestling match between the reason of the body and the madness of its incarnations Within advanced culture, every subject is pregnant with madness. In Nietzsche, a drama of madness results whenever Dionysus meets Diogenes. In the preceding discussion, we have played with the question of which post zarathustrian mask would remain available to this thinker after he played himself out in the impossible role of the non-religious originator to the very limits of what is humanly possible. Now it becomes clear that this question has been incorrectly phrased. A subsequent mask would have been inconceivable on the stage upon which the drama has been carried out up to this point. Only the countenances that belong to the speaker's program for incarnation can appear upon the stage. After all, only one decision remains, whether to demolish the stage, an act that is tantamount to the suspension of the attempt at incarnation, or to escape into the madness of a final embodiment, the fatal process of becoming a god. Whenever Dionysus encounters Diogenes, this decision comes into play. It is the final performance of civilization, performed within the fragile body of an individual upon whom is thrust what he, quote, was never permitted to want, end quote. The collision of Apollo and Dionysus, of Logos and physis, of Metaphysics and chemical Wisdom. Here Diogenes stands for the playful body of an individual who would have saved his irresponsible, sovereign expressiveness. In that he suffuses all missions with irony. Which results in his quote-unquote language sticking out its tongue at Logos. If he stops to think properly, he does not have such terribly important things to say. He makes use of all languages to show how one is ultimately unable to say anything with them. Thus, Socrates' Mino Minos and the music-making Socrates are ultimately one and the same. On the one hand, Nietzsche's Dionysus represents the phantasm of a body that wants to incarnate a divine Logos, a body that is now only an instrument and speaks worlds, very nearly breaking the chains of individuation and the final indolence of the flesh so that it can unite the painful celebration of birth with that of life in a delirium of prophecy. For an empirical individual, however, this incarnation of Dionysus is the unendurable, pure and simple, identical to the manifestation of the unendurable, away from which all paths of culture lead towards what is endurable. No one, without having been prepared by something that is beyond the imaginable, can endure the shock effects of Dionysian radiation, and almost no one survives being immersed in what is unimaginable and irreparable. Nietzsche's metaphysical thesis on art provides the most impressive explanation for this. The compulsion towards art permeates existence on all levels. The unendurable must redeem itself into what can be endured, The irreparable must allow itself to be replaced, the unimaginable must allow itself to be represented, the irresponsible must accept responsibility for itself, what is immediately incommunicable must be communicated, and the indivisible must be broken up so that it can endure itself. The presence must be brought back into the representation, because pure presence, apart from the unavailable exception of the mystical, is synonymous with the unendurable for human beings within the status quo. This is where Diogenes makes his appearance. The crazy man who announces the deaths of God, Logos, the empowered world, morality. He is the Dionysian saviour from what is all too Dionysian. Because he has made it his business to experience the extremes, he has alerted himself to the possibility of adventuring in the intermediate sites. Held up before the backdrop of the Dionysian, banality begins to shine abysmally enough. And wherever this shining appears to be the most life-enhancing, there sits Diogenes in his sunlight, lazy and deep, wary and happy. The personified denial of explosion, the illuminated prophylaxis against deadly radiation, the protector of the everyday, and the thinker of a Dionysian in durability. Diogenes warns the Dionysian philosopher against being ensnared in the Trap of Incarnation. He reminds him that there is no Logos that would have authorized us to embody Dionysus. The ingenious corporeality of life itself already is Dionysus. And every duplication of this primary corporeality through the embodiment of an imaginary Dionysus could only lead to madness. Diogenes helps the Dionysian thinker to resist embodying God directly and being destroyed by the horror of the extraordinary. He protects him from burning too quickly. Thus, Diogenes, to a certain extent, incarnates the non incarnation. He demonstrates his contented state of having nothing to say and lives an existence that playfully withdraws from all duty. He practises with the greatest presence of mind, the art of winning away from the empowered word, a meaning that was intended by the powers themselves. He is the master of the art of subversion through humour. Diogenes opposes the pseudo-Platonic, as well as spiritual Christian and modern moralistic hysteria of incarnation to the body's a priori attitude of leave me in peace which in itself already speaks enough. The question as to the composition of Nietzsche's mask is, at base, a question as to the possibility of bringing the moralistic theatre of incarnation of European metaphysics to an end. According to Nietzsche's response to this question, everything that has played a part in the fate of this thinker, even if only remotely, is remembered as horrible. Horrible because, among other things, no one who has glanced even briefly behind the curtain of Western rationality can still pretend that Nietzsche's descent into madness was a private affair. This descent was, on the contrary, the individual recapitulation of an entire civilization. An exemplary sacrifice that, next to the death of Socrates and the slaughter of Jesus, represents a third unforgettable statement on the relationship between the empowered word and the expression of life within Western culture. Quote, not only the reason of millennia, but their madness too breaks out in us. It is dangerous to be an heir. End quote. In his Dionysian farewell performance, Nietzsche sought reasons with which he could, in spite of everything, affirm his tormented life. This incarnation of the impossible. What would he not have given for the chance to breathe a sigh of relief within the context of an everyday existence that would have allowed him to let the matter of God, Alf sich, rest and no longer violate his body. The miserable carriage horse. He longed, because of the confusion of his compulsion towards incarnation, for an ultimate nakedness and simplicity. It is not least of all because of this that the word cynicism so frequently haunts the writings of his last conscious years. Perhaps then even a professorship in Basel would have been good for something as a form of being, and the naked existence of a god could not have been as trying and compromising. He would have had no more cultural gold in his body, which would have had to be exchanged for acknowledgment as a royal child and given away because of the collapse of the treasury. He would have done something that was his own. He could have given culture its due, taken a fragment of unavoidable logos upon himself, and at the same time fulfilled his task of incarnation honestly and artfully. Only then would he have been able to release himself to do what he was. Only then would he have been able to release himself to what he was. Not a word become flesh, which irritated the dry masculine body with hopeless pregnancies. Not a historical idea that dragged the body behind it as a melancholy casualty, but a silent, spiritually rich, playful physis a concrete individuality beyond missions and resignations. A parmenidaic moment awaits an individual such as this, who has returned from the battlefields of the drama of individuation to that which can be endured. If the partiality of circumstances opposes it, it may experience being as a successful and unsurpassable recognizability. It encounters the great moments in which existence, corporeality and knowledge are conceived of as a unified whole. From this point forward, everything is comedy. The war is over. Research has come to an end. In every second of its existence the world would be acknowledged as being enough. Now a thought that leaves no shadow blossoms forth without need for transcendent worlds. Without reduction, without imputation, supported only by a perception that is free from the weight, Lidschlag, of the researching ego, without interference and without the necessity of indulgence, immaculately looking the obvious in the eye. It is the midday of being, the calm lull of obligation, Zollen. The weight of the world has been lifted. There is incorrigibility wherever we look. Dionysus is philosophising.